Thanks. Thank you for that, Sharon. Um, so I just want to I want to take a minute uh, to say a prayer for India and for the believers there and for those that are just struggling to survive. So let's go ahead and do that. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for India, a nation where about one seventh of the Lord's pop of the world's population lives. And I know in recent years there's been a lot of a lot of Hindu fundamentalism government led I know that there's been uh, a lot of issues for Christians there and that's been going on for a long time Lord and I just pray that that these kids in this situation would be an opportunity to spread your love and that people would be impacted by it I thank you for the for the faith of the missions committee responding in this way and pray that you would just continue to be with us as a church as we speak as we seek ways to respond meaningfully to needs both around the world and here locally. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you all for being here. I'm just going to be... Oh, yes. Kids. I forgot about the kids. I got busy praying. Look, they're like, we got to get out of here. All right. Uh, good. Good. See you guys. Uh, I'm just going to start off by being completely upfront with you guys right off the bat. I think when you have bad news, or this isn't bad news, but just kind of intense news to deliver, it's better just to jump straight into it. So the next two weeks of sermons are going to be particularly challenging for us to address as a church. We are going to spend both weeks looking at the same text from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this text is concerned about two things that are very tempting for me as the person standing up here delivering the sermon to shy away from. Sex and church discipline. If I am being honest, I might have asked myself whether or not you all would notice if I just skipped right on over these verses and continued to move through 1 Corinthians. Both sex and church discipline are difficult topics to address. Today we're going to talk about sex. Next week we'll re we will return to the same passage of scripture to see what it has to say about church discipline. The Bible's approach to both of these topics is very countercultural. It was the case when Paul wrote it nearly 2,000 years ago, and it is the case now. But addressing these issues is especially important because how the average American thinks is so different from how Christians who rely on the Bible should think. Let's go ahead and get started. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Those verses are printed in your bulletin, or you can use your personal Bible. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. 
And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the, leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Normally, when I preach, I take a text, and I tried to explain what that text meant in its original context. I then explored the implications of that truth for Christians today. This approach is called expository preaching. Today's sermon is not expository. We are not going to focus on all of these verses. The majority of these verses we will actually cover next week we're going to focus on what paul means when he writes sexual immorality that will be the focus of this sermon today's verses begin with paul expressing concern about something he has heard from some of the believers in corinth the word has gotten him that sexual immorality is happening to many modern people Paul's concern with sexual immorality seems antiquated. The very idea of sexual immorality seems like something out of the 1950s. Supposedly, our current society is more enlightened. There are no limits on sexual expression. A person can identify as hetero, homo, bi, trans, a, pan, or many other variations of sexual. I learned this week that an autosexual is someone who is sexually attracted to themselves. Who a person is sexually is thought to be a reflection on their unique makeup and experience. We are told calling certain acts or lifestyles immoral is an attempt to limit others self-discovery doing so represses others in their attempts to be their authentic selves the only acts that can be referred to as sexually immoral in the public sphere these days without pushback are those in which power is used to force other people into sexual acts they are not willing participants in over the past few years, the Me Too movement sprung up to identify and punish those who used power in this way. The orthodoxy of our society is that no person should be forced into any sexual act. Doing so is wrong, but whatever sexual acts a person willingly participates in cannot be wrong. There are definitely no limits on how a person ought to think. 
pornography that depicts sexual acts involving power and unwilling participants is mostly considered acceptable. While Paul might be surprised by some of the new labels that exist in our modern world, the general approach to sex would not have been unfamiliar to him. Many people in Corinth thought the same way people do today. Sex was a means of personal satisfaction. Or at least that was the case if you were a member of the privileged class, those who were wealthy, male, and Roman. What gets held up as an enlightened perspective today is not new. Different cultures throughout history have had a similar outlook. Our world differs from these previous iterations only in that sex, like everything else, has been democratized. Whereas in the past, the unfettered pursuit of sexual satisfaction was reserved for the elites, it is now open to all due to the existence of birth control and other ships. The concerns Paul expresses about the Corinthians' sexual morality is not because he thinks sex is bad. Let me say that again. Paul is concerned not because he thinks sex is bad. In fact, he recognizes sex is good. Problems arise when something that is good is misused. I have a decent amount of tools in my garage, but it seems like 75% of the time when I'm doing a project, I lack the appropriate tool. I end up trying to make one of the tools I have work. The result is I often do more damage than good. I lost count of how many bolts I have stripped using the wrong wrench. The tool I am using is not the problem. The problem is I am not using it for its designed use. The more powerful any particular thing, the more damage can come through its misuse. We talked about this in the sermon series on money back in the fall, some of you might remember. The amount of damage you can do with a hammer is less than the amount of damage you can do with a jackhammer. The amount of damage you can do with a jackhammer is less than the damage you can do with a backhoe. Sex is particularly powerful for better or for worse. When used as intended, the results can be extraordinary. God literally causes children to come into existence through sex. Two human beings can experience a level of closeness that surpasses any other human interaction. When sex is used inappropriately, the results are devastating. Often the negative consequences that get focused on are the physical ones. The more significant issues are psychological and spiritual. The Bible is clear about how God designed sex to operate. Ephesians 5.31 says, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In this verse, Paul is reiterating a statement that was made in Genesis 2.24. Jesus also quoted the same verse. The position Paul states is not a new one. It is rooted in how God intended humanity to operate from creation onward. It is not describing how people actually live. From the earliest times, there have been those who have lived outside of God's arrangement. A man and a woman becoming one flesh is the ideal. The genders were made in a complementary way for this purpose. They share a basic humanity, but are nonetheless different. In their complementary natures unifying, they more fully reflect their Creator. No person can be in a one flesh relationship with multiple people. This is why the Bible takes adultery so seriously. Adultery is an assault on a sacred relationship. When a one flesh relationship between two people is broken, there can be no clean separation. Jesus says in Mark 10, 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. To many, this sounds way over the top. I would encourage those who think so to talk with someone going through a divorce. For those people, the termination of a one flesh relationship feels like they are experiencing a slow death. It feels like their soul is being ripped apart. Due to the significance of the one flesh relationship that comes through sexual union, a committed, lifelong relationship, a marriage, is the only setting where sex can operate as God intended. As I say this, I understand this sounds incredibly restrictive to modern ears. The question everyone, every person has to answer for themselves is pretty straightforward. What is sex? If sex is purely an enjoyable physical act, then the only limit that exists is whether or not the individuals having sex are enjoying themselves. On the other hand, if sex is an act that includes the union of body, mind, and spirit in a one flesh relationship, then additional boundaries are called for. Many of you are aware that I enjoy listening to podcasts. I have my favorites that I listen to for sports, faith, politics, and other categories. One podcast I regularly listen to is a celebrity that does interesting interviews with other celebrities and he also interviews scientists and other intellectuals now i disagree with much of what he says and the way he thinks but i find listening to smart people even those i disagree with at times helps to sharpen my own thinking so anyway a few months back i was listening to one of these podcast episodes in the episode, the celebrity was interviewing a sex therapist. As you can imagine, this therapist was 
very progressive. She went out of her way not to condemn any person's sexual preferences. She clearly had no desire to get canceled. However, when pressed, it became clear that when she described the ideal sexual relationship, she was describing a marriage. My point in mentioning this is that the Christian position on sex is just a refusal to live in denial about what sex is. It is not unusual to find many people in our current world that would agree a committed relationship is the appropriate setting for sex. They would just disagree that marriage is the level of commitment necessary. I mean, isn't it enough when two people love each other? Well, yes, but we need to clarify what love is. In our world, love gets talked about as a feeling. It is something people fall into. Christians must reject such a shallow definition of love. A feeling is not what sent Jesus to the cross. God did not get all warm and fuzzy and decide to send Jesus into this world. If God's love towards humanity were determined by feelings on a moment-by-moment basis, we would all be in big trouble. This world wouldn't even exist. If you want to understand what love really is, when you get home today, go read Hosea chapter 11. Real love is not a feeling. It is a commitment, a covenantal promise. It is a promise to sacrificially put another's needs ahead of your own. Love is not the selfish pursuit of satisfaction, physical or otherwise. Men and women that don't love each other enough to make the commitment of marriage to one another should not be having sex with one another. This is true for the protection of all involved. It is unwise to experience the unity that comes with a one-flesh relationship without the stability that comes through covenantal commitment. In the United States in 2021, the commitment of marriage is recognized through a ceremony of marriage that is recognized legally by the state. When I do weddings, I make a pronouncement of marriage at the end. I say to the bride and groom, since you have promised to love each other in the presence of God and these witnesses and have exchanged vows and rings, I now pronounce that you are husband and wife according to the laws of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and before all creation. What God has joined together, <clears throat> let no one celebrate. Every time I make this statement, I get really excited. It makes all the details that come with doing a wedding worth the effort. This statement acknowledges what is recognized as necessary for a marriage in our world, both legally and spiritually. It is true this has not always been the case. 
In the Old Testament, for instance, nobody went to the town clerk to apply for a marriage license. They didn't even always have a ceremony. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage in Genesis 24 happens right after they meet for the first time when Isaac takes Rebekah into his tent. For most, of the his, for most of history, governments were not responsible for determining what qualified as a marriage and what didn't. Some make the argument today that the United States should pivot to this sort of an approach. Christians should understand that marriage is a spiritual reality first and a legal one second. This doesn't mean the legal aspect of marriage is unimportant. It just means it is not primary. Different cultures have different practices for determining what is a marriage and what is not. While these practices are not infallible commandments from God that never change, they are important for the people living in that setting. The spiritual marriage is primary, but the spiritual commitment is communicated in our world through a wedding that is legally recognized. If saying, I love you, and I want to be with you forever, was enough to be married, we would have an awful lot of high schoolers that were married in our society. Unfortunately, the need to have a wedding has become a hang-up for many couples. The expectation. The costs that come with those expectations are so high that people who want to make the marriage commitment to each other hold off doing so until they can afford a wedding that lives up to certain expectations. When this happens, it is a tragedy. Four years ago, the week I started being the senior pastor here at Byfield Parish Church, Ann and I had some friends that wanted to get married and they couldn't afford a big fancy wedding and so i did the ceremony in our living room there's three people there i don't know what it cost them because i don't know what it cost to get a marriage license from the town clerk but that was it that's all it costs the cost of a wedding should not hold a couple back i don't want to leave anyone here today feeling like they are they alone are a failure in living out the sexual moral standard that Paul points to every Christian is in process being a Christian does not mean we succeed a hundred percent of the time in living out God's best for our lives it means we are striving to live out God's best through grace the truth is living out christian morality in the area of sex is challenging it is challenging for those that are single for sure as humans we have an ingrained desire for the oneness of a committed sexual relationship when we do not experience it we are tempted to seek it elsewhere whether that is in uncommitted physical relationships or through some digital means Single people often think married people no longer find living out what Christianity teaches about sex to be a challenge. Married people can tell you 
how hard it is to live out the spiritual reality of a one flesh relationship in marriage. Many marriages do not exemplify the oneness they are supposed to. Instead, they exhibit selfishness, jealousy, lust, and a lack of satisfaction. Even those that are married struggle. Living out the Christian ideals around sex is especially challenging in a sex-obsessed culture where we are constantly inundated with explicit messages and images. Again, we can take some small comfort in knowing we are not the first generation of Christians that has been challenged in this way. Our experience is very similar to what the Corinthians face. The generations that came in between had their own sexual perversities they had to confront. The culture we exist in is a reason living out the biblical ethical standards around sex is difficult. It is not an excuse. We can recognize this world is hard to live in as a Christian. The fact it is hard doesn't excuse our failures. The Christian journey is one of continual repentance. This was a large part of the issue with the Corinthians. They were not living lives of repentance. They thought they were doing great. They were arrogant. If you don't recognize there is an issue, you definitely will not succeed in resolving that issue. We need to recognize where we are falling short. The point is not to feel shame. The point is to move forward. Our society would tell us we are defined by our sexuality in a positive way. In rejecting this, some Christians end up believing we are defined by our failures in the area of sex in negative ways. Neither position is the Christian position. Christian identity is a product of who we are in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christians are called to live out who we are in Christ, in all areas, including in our sexual relationships. The Bible focuses on these relationships frequently. This is an area where people so often struggle to enjoy the goodness that God has for us. Sex is supposed to be the culmination of a one flesh relationship that includes body, mind, and spirit. This type of relationship should not be pursued flippantly. If we choose to do so, the results will be negative. A covenantal relationship between a male and a female, a marriage, is the situation in which a one flesh relationship can be realized on this earth. Failures in the area of sex don't make any person irredeemable. We have all fallen short of God's ideas. We are all falling short daily. 
we recognize these shortcomings not so we can wallow in our failures, but so we can see where we are falling, where we are failing to live out the new life we have in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to experience the goodness you have made possible through your created order, Lord. I thank you for the ways that you work through the lives of human beings, the way that you bring children into this world, the ways that you bind us together, both in marriages and in other ways, Lord. And we live in a world where there is so much chaos and it's so easy for us to focus on that chaos and our relationship to it. I pray that we would see ourselves as Christians as you see us. I pray that we would see ourselves as being in Christ and that we would live out that high calling, Lord, in all areas of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.